0: On August 20th, it's kind of surprising to think that, at least for me it was. On August 20th, in this class, I taught a lesson regarding the sovereignty of God. And in that class, we learned the following truths. We learned that God is sovereign over all, very broad category. We learned that God is sovereign over creation. And then thirdly, on August 20th, we learned that God is sovereign over providence. And this morning we continue our study of this attribute of God. And I would like you to consider, first of all, this would really be the fourth point God is sovereign over evil and sin. Now you might think that's a very terrible way to start a lesson, but of course I have reasons for us to begin with this. God is sovereign over evil and sin. This is important to grasp from the Bible, because there are Christians who wrongly think that somehow God is not sovereign over that which is evil, but if he's God, he is indeed sovereign over all, including evil. And as we consider this truth, we must remember that the Bible teaches us very plainly that God is not the author of sin and he is never tainted by sin. In Habakkuk 1, verse 13, you don't need to turn there, we read, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil, and you cannot look on perverseness. So we must remember that God is not the author of sin, God is never tainted by sin, and we must also remember that God never tempts anyone to sin. In James 1, and you may wish to turn there, James 1 verses 13 and 14, we read, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no man." But each man is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lust and enticed. And there we stop the reading of James 1. So we must remember that God never tempts anyone to sin. Having stated these biblical truths, we must also see in the scriptures, first of all, that evil spirits are under the sovereign rule of God and they fulfill God's sovereign and wise purposes. Turn now in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16, and we'll begin reading at verse 14. 1 Samuel chapter 16, and beginning at verse 14. To see this truth in the Bible, that evil spirits are under the sovereign rule of God, and they fulfill God's sovereign and wise purposes. 1 Samuel 16, verse 14. Now the spirit of Jehovah departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from Jehovah troubled him. And Saul's servants said unto him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God troubles you. Now this portion of Scripture may trouble you, I hope it doesn't, but if it does trouble you, you need to think about what is written in the infallible God-breathed word here in First Samuel 16. Jehovah departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from Jehovah troubled him. But now turn to First Kings 22 and verses 19 and following. First Kings 22, beginning at verse 19. And Micaiah said, speaking to King Ahab, therefore hear the word of Jehovah. Micaiah is the prophet of Jehovah. I saw Jehovah sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. And Jehovah said, who shall entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead. And one said on this manner, and another said on that manner. And there came forth a spirit, and stood before Jehovah, and said, I will entice him. And Jehovah said unto him, How? And he said, I will go forth, and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he, Jehovah, said, you shall entice him and shall prevail also. Go forth and do so. Now therefore, behold, this is now Micaiah the prophet speaking, behold, Jehovah has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets, and Jehovah has spoken evil concerning you. So my point is we must understand Again, God is not the author of sin. God is never tainted by sin. God does not tempt anyone, but evil spirits are under the sovereign control of God. And you should be very thankful to God that that's true. Would you like it if evil spirits were not under the control of Almighty God? I don't think you would. You shouldn't. But we also know from the scriptures that Satan himself is under the absolute sovereign rule of God. We're not going to turn to any passages, but you will know this. Satan was unable to do anything to Job. He was not able to do anything to Job in the Old Testament until God granted Satan permission. Satan also needed the Lord's permission to sift Peter as wheat. He could not do so without God's sovereign permission, but also sin itself is also under the sovereign control of God. Again, remember my beginning qualifying statements from biblical truth, but sin is also under the sovereign control of God. Turn to Genesis chapter 20 and verse 1, Genesis 20 and verse 1. Genesis 20, verse 1. And Abraham journeying from there toward the land of the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech king of Gerar sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night, and said to him, Behold, you are but a dead man, because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay even a righteous nation? Said he not himself unto me, She is my sister? And she, even she herself, said, He is my brother." In the integrity of my heart and the innocency of my hands have I done this. And God said unto him in the dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I permitted you not to touch her. So you see there in that passage, God withheld Abimelech from sinning. He's in sovereign control of this reality called sin. But now I would like to move on to our fifth main point. God is sovereign over man. Now, clearly, if God is sovereign over all, as we learned on August 20th, then God is sovereign over man as well. But nevertheless, it is important that we understand this truth very specifically. So turn, first of all, to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. Very familiar words to most of us, if not all of us, in this auditorium. Genesis 1 and verse 27. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Now, because God created man and woman, God has a righteous rule over them. He has the right to command and to instruct man and woman, of course, and as his creature, man is accountable to God, the creator and those commands and instructions are obvious as you read through Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, indeed through the entire Bible. But thinking of Genesis alone, we read in Genesis 1.22, God's command, be fruitful and multiply. In verse 26 of Genesis 1, man is to have dominion over the creation. In Genesis 2.17, God tells Adam... You may not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In Genesis three seventeen, we read, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it. Not a command, but instruction to Adam. So God, as the creator, gives commands, instructions to his creatures. God, as the creator, has the right to do that. And man, as the creature, must indeed listen to God and obey God. Now, many years later, the psalmist reiterated the dominion mandate which God originally gave to man as recorded in Genesis 1. And I'd like you to turn to Psalm 8, where we see this. Psalm 8, beginning at verse 3. Psalm 8 and verse 3, when I consider your hands, excuse me, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him but little lower than God. And crowned him with glory and honor. You make him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And there we stop our reading. So God continues to be the sovereign ruling man, even in man's fallen state. And the psalmist acknowledged this reality that God made him, that God made him actually the vice-regent in the earth. So God is sovereign over man, created man, commands, instructs, and gives him this responsibility as a vice-regent over the earth. But now turn to the New Testament, to the book of Acts, to Acts 17 and verse 24. Acts 17 and verse 24. Here the apostle Paul is preaching to the people of Athens, Greece. And he's declaring who God is to a bunch of very religious but pagan people. Acts 17 verse 24. The God that made the world and all things therein, he, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, neither is he served by men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And he made of one, every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed seasons and the bounds of their habitation. And there we stop the reading. So God, Paul declared, is not dependent upon man. Now that truth is not a truth really declaring the sovereignty of God. It's declaring another truth about God, but it's a very important truth. God is not dependent upon man. God is not dependent upon anything. God does not need man. You should never think, well, God somehow needs me. No, God actually does not need you. He doesn't need me as a pastor and a preacher. He uses me, but he does not need me. So we need to understand this. God does not need man or anything he created. God is supremely and perfectly sublime and glorious in himself and independent of his creation as the sovereign Creator and ruler of this universe. Perfectly, supremely, sublime and glorious in himself. And thus God is in absolute sovereign control of all things, including the time of every man's conception in the womb of his mother, including the place of his birth, including the place of his life. That's what Paul is declaring in Acts 17. And we need to understand this. Now turn to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27. So we've just considered that God is in absolute sovereign control of the time of every man's conception, then his birth, his place of birth, his place of living And in Hebrews 9, 27, we read, And inasmuch as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this comes judgment, and that's all we'll read of Hebrews 9, we see here it is appointed unto men once to die. The word means it is laid up, it is reserved a specific time a specific second, if I might say so, a specific time is reserved by God in which every human being will die. Now, of course, I understand there's the return of Christ. Some will be alive at his coming. But of course, we're not considering that reality here. Death, you see, is not left to chance or blind fate or an accident, as we call them. But death is, is appointed sovereignly by our sovereign God. So it should be clear from these specific passages that God is sovereign over the entirety of the lives of men, women, boys, and girls from conception to death. But God is also the sovereign king over the ultimate eternal destiny of all men. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 45. God is also the sovereign king over the ultimate eternal destiny of all men. Isaiah 45, beginning at verse 9 Woe unto him that strives with his maker a potsherd among the potsherds of the earth. Let me pause there. What a wonderful, glamorous description of us. Of course, it was not an accident that God caused Isaiah to write these words. These are God's words. Woe unto him that strives with his maker, a potsherd among the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashions it, What are you making? Or shall your work say, He has no hands? Woe unto him that says unto a father, What are you begetting? Or to a woman, With what are you travailing? And there we stop our reading. You see, Isaiah likens sinful humans like you and me To a broken piece of clay earthenware. A potsherd. Isaiah then exclaims that it is absurd madness. We need to understand this. It's absurd madness. It's absolute folly. It is outrageous arrogance for such a broken piece of clay cast on the earth to question and criticize the potter, God, the creator himself. God, who originally created that potsherd, not as a sinner, of course. God, who originally created that potsherd, really not as a potsherd, not as a broken piece of earthen clay, but as a piece of pottery, But man, by his sin and rebellion, you see, he has become a broken piece of earthenware. And how absurd, how mad, how foolish, how absolutely arrogant for that potsherd, for any of us, to be challenging God. And, you know, we hear this from the unbelieving. Sadly, sometimes we hear it from Christians who are not thinking biblically. But people who criticize God, well, if there's really a God, why does all this stuff happen in Ukraine? Why are all these famines happening in Africa? Why, you know, they do it with such arrogance. They're a broken piece of pottery. The Apostle Paul takes this imagery from Isaiah and he applies it to the matter of the eternal destiny of every human being. So turn now in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9 and beginning at verse 17. Romans chapter 9 and beginning at verse 17. For the scripture says unto Pharaoh, For this very purpose did I raise you up, that I might show in you my power and that my name might be published abroad in all the earth. Now, before I read further, let me just make a side comment here. Notice what we just read in verse 17. For the scripture says unto Pharaoh, for this very purpose did I raise you up, that I might show in you my power. Have you ever read this and thought, what What's being said here? Who spoke to Pharaoh? It says here, the scripture said unto Pharaoh. And then there's a quote, for this very purpose did I, God, raise you up. You see how God and scripture are really one in the mind of the Apostle Paul. The scriptures are God-breathed, you see. That's a side note. Verse 18. Now, <clears throat> So then, he has mercy on whom he will, and whom he will he hardens. You will say then unto me, Why does he still find fault? For who withstands his will? No, but, O man, who are you that reply against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why did you make me thus? Or has not the potter a right over the clay from the same lump to make one part a vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? And there we stop our reading. So Paul uses this imagery from Isaiah, applies it to the matter of the eternal destiny of every human being, God, as the Creator and Sovereign King, chooses to show mercy to some undeserving, wrath-deserving sinners, and he delivers them from their sins and from eternal damnation. And God, as the Creator and Sovereign King, also chooses to leave other wrath-deserving sinners in their sins, to receive the righteous punishment which they deserve in eternal hell. Now, you may be sitting there saying, I don't really like this. There's reasons why you're thinking that way, and it's not good. And you need to take heed to what Paul has written here, what God has revealed to us through Paul. But now in Romans 9, drop down, uh, look at verse 20 again. Romans 9, verses 20 and 21, which we've just read, Paul makes it clear that no man is in a position to righteously call God to account and to judge God by human standards and by the limited insight, if I may even use that word insight, by the limited insight which humans have. He's not saying people don't question. He's just showing us that no human being is in a position to righteously call God to account and to judge God by human standards and by the limited insight which humans have. People who challenge God's sovereign decisions and actions in the matter of salvation the salvation of sinners, they simply reveal their ignorance, their arrogance, and their rebellion as creatures. They willfully ignore the fact that the sovereign God and creator of the universe does numerous things which you, a little, finite, sinful man, cannot possibly understand. Neither can I. We forget that reality. We cannot possibly, as finite sinners, little creatures of the dust, potsherds, understand the many things that God does in this universe. And here I'd like to quote a commentator on this passage. It's very helpful. It's not lengthy. Leon Morris, he wrote, Paul is saying that God created people, that people became sinners and that God then dealt with them as sinners. If it is a question of the rights people have, we must bear in mind that whatever we may be in our own eyes, in God's sight, we are sinners. If we demand that we be treated in strict justice, we must bear in mind that justice will go hard with sinners." But now let's move on. In the sixth place, God is sovereign over salvation from sin. The eternal destiny of men, women, boys, and girls. But more specifically, God is sovereign over salvation from sin. So why do some individuals who hear the gospel repent of their sins, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and receive the forgiveness of their sins and salvation from their sins. Why do some individuals do that when they hear the gospel, while others who hear the gospel continue in their sins of unbelief, and unbelief is a sin, they continue in their sin of impenitence and rebellion against God, and then are lost in hell forever. Well, the answer to those questions, of course, are found in the Bible. Turn to Acts chapter 13 and verse 44. We have the definitive answer to this question found in passages such as Acts 13 verse 44. And the next Sabbath, Almost the whole city was gathered together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with jealousy and contradicted the things which were spoken by Paul and blasphemed. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first be spoken to you. Seeing you thrust it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. For so has the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set you for a light of the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation unto the uttermost part of the earth. And as the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of God, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And there we stop our reading. So here the gospel is proclaimed. Clearly some people reject it. They thrust it from themselves, basically saying, I'm not interested in eternal life. I don't really care. But others believed and received the gospel that was proclaimed. And then we're told here, Luke tells us who wrote these words, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. So notice from those words, that phrase, it's many, not all. It's many, not few. Many were ordained to eternal life. So it's not just a few, but it's not all. But notice, secondly, from that phrase, being ordained to eternal life is the choice and action of the triune God, not of man. As many as were ordained, it's God who does the ordaining. But notice, thirdly, from that phrase, believing is the consequence of first being ordained to eternal life. By the sovereign God. That's what the passage tells us. Believing is the consequence of first being ordained to eternal life by the sovereign God. God is sovereign over salvation from sin. Well, now let's turn back again to Romans chapter 9 and verse 10. Romans chapter 9 and verse 10. Romans 9, verse 10, Paul is continuing his not discussion so much as proclamation of what God has done in saving sinners, the matter of election. Romans nine ten, and not only so, but Rebekah also having conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born neither having done anything good or bad, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calls. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. Even as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it is not of him that wills, nor of him that runs, but of God that has mercy. And there we stop our reading. So in this passage, Paul uses history. It's good to study history all history, especially church history. In this passage, Paul uses the histories of Jacob and Esau and Moses and Pharaoh in order to declare the absolute sovereignty of God in the matter of salvation from sin. Paul wants us to understand that God's sovereign choice of Jacob for salvation was not based upon anything within Jacob. His choice of Jacob for salvation from sin was not determined by or based upon Jacob's bloodline or Jacob's heritage or his upbringing or his privileges. God's sovereign choice of Jacob for salvation from sin was not based upon Jacob's supposed or imagined inherent goodness or righteousness, for he had none. Like his brother Esau, Jacob was in union with Adam, our first father. He was a sinner without inherent goodness or righteousness. God's sovereign choice of Jacob for salvation from sin was not based upon Jacob's subsequent life or deeds, whether good or bad, because God's choice was made, Paul tells us very plainly, prior to the birth of Jacob and Esau. So Paul's point is that God's choice of setting his love upon Jacob and consequently delivering Jacob from his sins had absolutely nothing to do with anything in Jacob. God did not choose Jacob because he was physically superior to Esau. Indeed, it seems he was not physically superior to Esau at all. God did not choose Jacob because Jacob was intellectually superior to Esau. He didn't choose Jacob because he was morally superior to Esau. He was not. He did not choose Jacob because Jacob was somehow spiritually sensitive. And Esau was not spiritually sensitive. Esau was not spiritually sensitive, that's true. But Jacob was not spiritually sensitive. God did not choose him because of such a supposed reality. God did not choose Jacob because he foresaw that Jacob would one day believe, that Jacob would one day repent. No, God did not choose Jacob because God foresaw anything good in Jacob. Not anything. Nothing commends us to God because we are sinners and creatures of the dust. Nothing makes us worthy for salvation Nothing makes us predisposed to receive God's grace. God's sovereign, gracious choice of Jacob was rooted in the heart of God so that out of his mere good pleasure, as Paul writes in Ephesians, out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity, God elected Jacob unto everlasting life. When we all deserve death because of our sin, it is a wonder of pure, sovereign grace that anyone receives forgiveness and life eternal. But now let's observe in the scripture specifically. God the Father, it's the triune God who saves. God the Father is sovereign in the salvation of sinners. Sinners. Turn to Ephesians 1, which I've already referred to, to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. It's the God and Father who chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blemish before him in love, having predestined us unto adoption as sons through Jesus Christ unto himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. And there we stop the reading. So God the Father chose to save specific sinners before the world was created. God the Father predestined those whom he chose to save in Christ, that they would then be adopted as sons into the family of God, God the Father's choosing to save specific sinners was not because of any good in those sinners, but according to the good pleasure of God's will. So we see in the Bible clearly that God the Father is sovereignly active in the salvation of sinners. But now God the Son is sovereign in the salvation of sinners. Turn to John chapter 10 and verse 14. John chapter 10 and verse 14. John 10 verse 14. The Lord Jesus is speaking. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and they shall become one flock, one shepherd. And there we stop the reading. This is just one sample from the New Testament showing us that God the Son is sovereign in the salvation of sinners. Jesus said in this passage of John 10, I lay down my life for the sheep. Other sheep I have, they shall be called. I will bring them. They will hear my voice. Of course, not hearing his voice with him here on earth or hearing his voice with him from heaven, but hearing his voice through the pages of scripture that are proclaimed, preached, explained to such sinners. Turn to John chapter six and verse 35. John six, verse 35. Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life, He that comes to me shall not hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that you have seen me, and yet believe not. All that which the Father gives me shall come unto me, and him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. For I am come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the will of him that sent me, that of all that which he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone that beholds the Son and believes on him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And there we stop our reading. So in this passage, you actually see this confluence of God the Father and God the Son and their sovereignty in the salvation of sinners. But focusing upon the Lord Jesus, he makes it very plain that any sinner who comes to him, he will indeed receive, he will indeed save. That's the marvel of the free offer of the gospel to everyone. So when you understand the sovereignty of God, the predestinating love and grace of God. When you understand these realities, it should not, it must not constrict your heart so that you are hesitant to say to any sinner indiscriminately, come to Jesus Christ and you will have the forgiveness of all your sins. That is what we are to do before all sinners We're not to be thinking, well, is he elect? Is she elect? I don't know. I'm not sure. Is he or she seeming to be getting prepared to receive the truth of the gospel? No, 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 no. You boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to sinners everywhere. Without apology, without embarrassment, without hesitation. But even as you do, you know God must work God the Father and God the Son and Jesus declared in John 6 he that comes to me I will no wise cast out all that the Father gives me will come I will lose nothing you see he will save he will save those who come to him but now God the Holy Spirit is also sovereign in the salvation of sinners Turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3 and verse 5. The Lord Jesus, as most of you know in this chapter, this portion, is speaking to the Pharisee named Nicodemus. John 3, verse 5. Jesus answered, speaking to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say unto you, Except one be born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto you, you must be born anew. The wind blows where it will, and you hear the voice thereof, but do not know where it comes from. And where it goes, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. There we stop our reading. The Spirit of God regenerates the dead sinner. And the Spirit of God, Jesus says, is like the wind outside. You can hear it, you can feel it, you cannot direct it. And all of these energy companies that are building all of these wind farms with their windmills, They can turn the windmill a little bit, but they cannot direct the wind and neither can we direct the sovereignty of God, the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, is sovereign in the salvation of sinners. So, brethren, in considering all of these truths this morning, what should be your response to these truths of God's sovereignty The first response should be silence. Putting your hand over your mouth. Be quiet. Recognizing that as a creature, as a finite creature, as a sinner, You have nothing to say. You are condemned in the sight of God because of your sins. Even as Paul declared in Romans 9.20, which we've already read, Nay, but O man, who are you that reply against God? When you think on these truths of God's sovereignty, and you should think on them, and even if they make you feel uncomfortable, you need to think about these Bible truths, these God-given truths about God and his sovereignty. You need to, as I've said on other occasions, pull the earbuds out of your ears, turn off your computer, Mute and turn over your smartphone. Don't let it even be near your hands. Especially this smartphone. Either turn it off or mute it. Turn it upside down. Get it away from your reach. Open up a Bible. Start to read through Romans chapter 9. And when these truths start to grip your heart, you should realize I have nothing to say to God in the sense that I am a creature of the dust, a sinner before a holy, perfectly righteous God who gives me life and breath and all things richly to enjoy. And yet I have spurned him. I have shunned him. I've ignored him. I've gone contrary to his holy laws. I've rebelled against him in my heart, my mind. When you begin to understand who he is and his sovereignty and who you are as a sinner, the first response should actually be putting your hand over your mouth. And the next response should be humility. Goes hand in hand with that, I suppose. Think of the words of Job at the end of that book, where Job declared, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. There's no place for pride. A proud Christian is a contradiction in terms. We should be instead in our hearts and minds and lives and words clothed with humility. A third response should be prayer. As with the publican, the tax collector, as with David in Psalm 51, God be merciful. If you are not merciful to me, indeed, I'm lost. If you, O God, do not sovereignly, graciously, powerfully give mercy to me, the sinner, I'm lost. But then you should rise up and express gratitude to God for salvation from sin in Jesus Christ. Those of you who already are true Christians, take the words of Peter, blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy begat us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. You see, Peter was heavenly-minded, but before he was heavenly-minded, he was blessing and thanking God for his mercy in Jesus Christ. That's what you should do, and not just on Sundays. And then following on to that response of gratitude should be worship. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has first given to him? and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and unto him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. You see, the response should be ultimately worshiping God for who he is as the almighty, gracious, loving, sovereign God and Savior through the Lord Jesus Christ. So silence, humility, prayer, gratitude, worship. These should be our responses to these truths, these wonderful truths that God is sovereign over salvation, over everything and everyone. Well, may God help us. So let's close in prayer. We come to you, our sovereign, gracious, heavenly Father, our God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask that you would forgive us for the many times when, at least in our thoughts, we have challenged you and your sovereignty with impudence, with arrogance, with pride, with stupidity, Lord, forgive us for our sins, all of them. Thank you that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses away all sins, all iniquities, all transgressions. And we thank you for this privilege to worship you, our God, our creator, our sovereign, our savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. And ask for your Holy Spirit's presence in the upcoming time of worshiping you and your blessing upon the preaching of the Word of God by Pastor Chensky. We pray, our God, that you would cause these truths to be proclaimed not only in this church, but throughout our needy world. Come, Lord, and manifest your glory, sovereignty, power, grace, and love and the declaration of the gospel and the salvation of sinners throughout our world. We ask for these many blessings in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.